0: do uh, and establish a little bit of what life looks like as we're trying to build a home. And I kind of want to lean into the, <laughs> the word build, uh, that building something takes effort, it takes materials, it takes intentionality, it takes planning. And so what we tried to do in this semester was to give us some equipment, some, some tools as it were, whereby we might build a life together uh, as the church in healthy ways. Uh, and so what we began to do was talk about the doctrine of the church so we could theologically wrap our minds around it. Uh, we then began to move to what healing community looked like. We did two weeks on the ways in which community builds us up and shapes us and molds us. Then we focused in on the micro uh, community that God has established that we call marriage. And then we did a couple weeks on the relationship between us and our children, this family uh, atmosphere. Well, then in the last four weeks, today being the fourth, we have uh, tried to look for some insight into the ways in which groups of people typically interact with one another uh, through the eyes of what I would argue is some great common grace insight coming to us from the social and psychological sciences realm that we know as systems theory, which is a tragic name. I'm really trying to find something that's a whole lot more workable and doesn't sound so esoteric and so like, what is he talking about, systems theory? And even worse than that is the title of this video I'm about to show you, right? Uh, Friedman's Theory of Differentiated Leadership. Um, Okay, Uh, it, it even gets worse. But remember, all we're talking about is the ways in which I, as an individual, am either contributing to the peace and the lowering of anxiety of a certain organization, or I am becoming a conduit for that uh, anxiety as it goes through an organization. We spend a little bit of time talking about what anxiety is, and anxiety is that sensation. That I had something and I'm I'm losing it. It's being taken away from me. Well, whenever you take someone who is bringing a lot of anxiousness into that particular group of people that are trying to relate to each other, uh, interesting things happen. Especially when you find someone who is so deeply affected by other people's opinion of them or who have no ability to create any kind of mental separation between themselves and the kinds of things that are happening in other people's lives, bad things happen, and organizations get sick. They get uh, get to where they are hurting very deeply. Sometimes, if you can't find a way to stop some of that hurting, those organizations become what we call chronically anxious. And there's no organizations quite like churches to take on these particular aspects. They're incredibly dangerous. You can go into a place where if things aren't crazy, someone will introduce crazy in the midst of it because that's the norm. It's very, very difficult to become healthy when you have a lot of people who are making it about them. <laughs> Remember, that's how, we, that's how we define sort of this differentiation. Dif- when you're non-differentiated, right, when you don't know who you are, you allow other people to set that definition for you. And because you're not well understanding who you are and allowing those other people to be who they are, it creates sickness through an organization. And this little video has gotten passed down. I mean, literally, it's six and a half minutes, okay? But it's gotten passed around a lot. You can see it's one of uh, of the most played videos of the people that work in systems theory. And when I tell you it's (laughs) low-tech, it's like super low-tech. It's a guy talking to a microphone while he draws little shapes on the thing, but I think you'll find it interesting. Listen in, because then I'm going to ask you uh, what you thought about some of the things that he said. So, we'll see if it hits you the way it hit me. Randall, can we see what happens? We got any volume here? A leader is
1: someone who influences a group of individuals to accomplish a common goal, whether that goal is to design a fuel-efficient car, respond to an international military crisis, or find a new company health plan. Now, there are many Different ideas out there about how to become an effective leader. Some suggest that leaders must have certain traits, such as intelligence or self-confidence, sociability, maybe even being tall. Others say it's about technique or skill that leaders can acquire. But in a failure of nerve, the late Edwin Friedman goes against the grain of leadership studies and suggests that effective leadership is not about traits or skills as much as it is an emotional process of regulating one's own anxiety. Hmm. He refers to this process as self-differentiation, or knowing where one ends and another begins. This is a systems perspective on leadership rooted in cell biology. Take this healthy biological cell, it has a nucleus which controls the activity of the cell. It has these mitochondria floating around here. And it has a cell membrane which keeps the cell separate from other cells when they hang out together to form biological tissue, like this heart. This heart cell is differentiated. It knows its purpose is to pump blood. Bum, 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 bum. Despite what these uppity brain cells may think. Not only are we humans made up of these cells, we function like them. We also form ourselves into groups, whether these are families, companies, or nations. Like an individual cell, a differentiated person can stay connected to others without losing his or her identity or without taking on the emotional anxiety of the group. A differentiated leader can take a well-defined stand even when followers disagree while remaining connected in a meaningful way with others. Now here's the deal. Some people in these organizations are poorly differentiated and they act like viruses. Viruses do not have a nucleus or a core organizing principle, so they cannot exist on their own. Rather, they look for other poorly differentiated cells that are easy to latch onto. This may look like harmless workplace gossip, but what they are doing is infecting the organization with their anxiety. They cannot handle one-on-one conflict with another person, so they attempt to rope in a third person, thinking this will lessen the anxiety. This is what Friedman calls emotional triangles. And if you are the one being roped in or triangled, it's so tempting to enmesh yourself with the drama. It's even flattering. Hey, you are being asked to help out in a situation, so this person must really trust you. Hmm. But don't do it, don't get triangled, because this only leads to getting stuck, and only results in more anxiety in the system, and the infection spreads. And worse, it's bad for you. Friedman says that the chief cause of stress and burnout is not overworking like we all think, but getting stuck in other people's problems or getting triangled. But the differentiated leader is like the emotional immune system of an organization. By being a non-anxious presence, differentiated leaders resist being triangled, which influences others to take responsibility for themselves. This is very counterintuitive to those of us who are used to chronically anxious organizations. But Friedman says that differentiated leaders are able to tolerate other people's discomfort because this encourages them to take personal responsibility. In the long run, the differentiated leader's presence has the effect of diffusing the anxiety in the organization allowing it to develop and function in a healthy way. Now, about sabotage. Some organizational systems are chronically anxious. In other words, they have a lot of people who are poorly differentiated. Such an organization will be threatened by the presence of a differentiated leader because in a way, this upsets the way things have always been. the homeostasis of the organization. So, the chronically anxious organization will inevitably turn on the differentiated leader. But, according to Friedman, sabotage is a sign that the leader is doing the right thing, and it's the leader's non-anxious response to such sabotage that defines the differentiated leader. This, he says, is the key to the kingdom of effective leadership. The beauty of this approach to leadership is that it applies to anyone at any leadership level, whether you are, as Friedman says, a parent or a president. Finally, differentiated leadership is not a static condition. None of us arrives completely at this place. Rather, differentiated leadership is a direction in life. Hmm. A direction toward maturity, and the only way we can get moving in that direction is to take care of ourselves. Hmm. Or, as Jesus of Nazareth said, "To love your neighbor as you love yourself."
0: Okay, <clears throat> I warned you it'd be lo-fi. <laughs> lo-fi there. All right, so I, I just—I'd love just to hear. Oh, here we go. You want to give me the screen back, Randall? There we go. So, process some thoughts here and tell me what you thought of the video there. Any impressions that jumped out at you? Yeah, what you got, Jonathan? Yeah. Yeah, for all the weeks we've been talking about it, Jonathan's saying that it feels a little bit like easier said than done as he talks about, you know, remaining calm in the midst of, I've forgotten about the little cartoons he draws above where it's like, count to 10, deep breaths, you <laughs> know, because what he's talking about is, is making sure that the leader is trying. And of course, the hope is, is that you have a, a, a room full of leaders, right, who are themselves learning, and he said this, to regulate their own emotions in the face of other people's emotions, right? And I love that's the fact that why he said at the very end that this is not something that you arrive at, right? You don't look and say, ta-da, I'm a well-differentiated non-anxious presence. Ta-da, now here I am. I've arrived. No, there oftentimes leaders themselves uh, to whatever degree are themselves going through their own emotional processes, right? Which just means something has come into your life and made you anxious, You've, you've you had something and now it's being lost. You feel like you're being robbed of something. And sometimes that leader themselves has to go through the postal process themselves while others around them either do it in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. So we're not looking at sort of a stasis, like a, a place to arrive. We're talking about taking a path in the journey that God has called us to do and be when it comes to our mission in this, in this city in healthy ways. That's a great reflection. John, what else? Yeah. Yeah, so the question was, so when all of a sudden these triangles get made, there's no doubt that Friedman was very big on, on the way in which you, he, Friedman would map out organizations whether they're families or churches or companies using these triangles. What are the places where people are forming these clumps that you and I would sort of normally refer to them as, and how are those things sort of um, contributing to the lack of health in the, in the organization? Especially when you've got someone who is trying to refuse to be triangled, how does that encourage the other person to take responsibility for themselves? Is that your question? We're going to deal with that in the lesson when we get there. Because triangulation is the number one way in which Friedman says that it's unhealthy to react to anxiety. Because what I want to look at this morning is go through some of those ways in which, in unhealthy ways, we deal with the stress in our lives, okay? And of course, he's already given us one here. But the number one thing that we're looking for is to to become someone, we used the word last week, as mature. Friedman's word was differentiated. And what he means by that is, is, you can trade the word maturity in there. Maturity is the ability to remain both connected to, in relationship to, significant people in our lives. That's the first one. Can I remain connected? In other words, does that person feel as if I can understand them, see the world through their eyes. And yet, here's the second part of it, not have our reactions and behaviors determined by them. You see the two things? On the one hand, can I still stay connected to them, but on the second hand, can I not allow them to somehow take me on and determine what my actions and reactions are? Can I be what I believe God has called me to be, what I know God says about me? differentiation maturity therefore deals with the effort to define oneself why do we talk about identity so much in the church why do we talk about this new identity that christ has formed in us as both a beloved screw-up right that jesus loves sinners but that we are absolutely sinners why do we talk about that so much it's in the it's in the hope that we're establishing an identity a way of thinking about ourselves to control oneself that's sanctification right and to become more responsible, take up the work of the kingdom, and to permit others to be themselves and well, learn to live in a body and a community. Pretty helpful definition as far as I'm concerned uh, when it comes to um, how the Bible understands maturity. So the question I'm going to deal with very briefly this morning is, what are the bad ways in which we deal with anxiety? Okay, what are the ways in which we um, find ourselves uh, in, in organizations and the ways in which we react to those poorly? Uh, because conflict is going to come up in, in, in every single circumstance. Conflict comes in every day somebody delivers a change to you. I don't know, if, for the people that came to the first service in our, um, in our uh, uh, corporate prayer, I, I, I love Melvin and, and, and Randall put those things together. And the, the corporate prayer is basically <laughs> uh, asking God for forgiveness for not inviting the surprises he brings in our lives. And it's really, if you're waiting on the service for the next one, you might want to feel this Because because the surprises are coming all the time. All the time. It's like, and here's a health diagnosis you didn't think was coming. And here's a job change you didn't think was coming. And here is, you know, a relative who just got sick. They never stop. And so, obviously, these things are constantly going on with us, and we're tempted to deal with them in a number of different ways. The first bad way is to have an emotional response to a threat, which is called reactivity. Reactivity is basically doing what comes natural, right? It's basically what happens when we, when we have an emotional response, doing what comes naturally. And typically, those things come in classic forms. It's either fight or flight, we either want to run away and get away from it, la 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 or we want to bow up and sort of create more anxiety uh, it's a constant focus on the latest most immediate crisis making one almost totally incapable of gaining the distance that it would and that would enable them to see the emotional process in which they themselves are engulfed does that make sense reactivity means that you're so you know sort of acting and reacting that you can't even see that you're in an emotional process right? And so that's why, that's why I keep saying deep breaths, deep breaths. What else is there? Yeah, constant fixation on the next problem. So th- your context is never considered. Reactivity. Number two, there's something that we call herding, not H-U-R-T-I-N-G, but herding. And this is what happens when the forces of togetherness are stronger than the forces of individuality, which is funny. When I read that again after going through my notes this week, I was like, well, that sounds like a good thing though, right? What makes that a bad thing? Well, Adaptation gravitates oftentimes to the least mature member if that's what you're living by. In other words, if you're saying, I just want to do whatever we can to kind of keep the peace, let's not rock the boat at all, shh, that's not being a non-anxious presence. <laughs> this is not about muting the things that need to be said in an organization. Even if that thing that needs to be said is going to itself create some anxiety in the, in the lives of people. Okay? Okay. Hurting is coming into a way that's just black and white thinking, right? We're going to do this one way. We're all, we're all or nothing. We're doing this as one thing, and therefore, I just don't want to think about it. Just do whatever people next to me. What are you, how are you going to vote? I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to vote. You vote. I'm going to do whatever you do. Number three, there's something called blame displacement. That guy's being blamed. Look at all those fingers pointing at him, right? Blame displacement is basically a refusal to take responsibility for one's own actions, And by the way, not just your actions, but also your reactions to other people's inputs into your life. Uh, Blame displacement started uh, a long time ago in the Garden of Eden. Lord, it was this woman you gave me, (laughs) right? Subtle way of Adam sort of taking responsibility and shirking it off to the side. Blaming, in other words, you can spend a lot of time increasing anxiety in the midst of your own feelings of loss by pointing fingers at the people who messed this up. (laughs) Boof. trust me, sometimes you go through an emotional process when you have to teach about anxiety and emotional processes. Um, Number four, quick fix mentality. It's a great big button on quick fix there. This is the tendency to seek symptom relief as opposed to fundamental change in the system, right? Quick fixes are trying to sort of put little fires out here and there when nobody can step back and see the whole picture and say to themselves, actually, this whole thing has gone wrong. You know, one of the primary issues with this, um, uh, this mentality is it's almost always used as this desire to avoid pain at all costs. But here's the deal. If an organization is going to grow, it's going to grow <laughs> through the same thing that causes you to grow when you decide to work out for the new year. The new year's coming around, so we're all going to get back in the gym, right? We're going to lose that weight. We're going to get healthy. But well, what's going to happen? The first two days after we start working out, we're going to be physically hurting. We know that because that's the only way you grow. Those muscles have to be torn down before they can be built back up. Well, That's true in an organization as well. That organization is gonna have to go through pain in order to grow. But if all of a sudden, and let's say it's for a good reason, you've got pain and trauma in your own past, that can make you a little adverse to wanting to go through that again, which of course is perfectly natural. So we're gonna do our best to give each other sort of the benefit of the doubt through it all. Uh, But if it's just simply trying to get the quick fix, uh, it can make things more difficult There's another great Friedman quote here where he says this, he says, technical and managerial solutions can often alleviate the symptoms of an organization, right? In other words, if you've got somebody who's a good technician, they can basically, you know, turn the heat on to get it warmer in the sanctuary so it's not so freezing cold, right? But they rarely modify the malignant chronic anxiety that could have been part of the institution's corporate culture for generations. Churches do this all the time, y'all. You've joined churches and your pastor are like this. And don't think Christ presence is any different. There are things that we carry on because of a legacy of being an organization that, create a, that we've not looked at because we can't see them. They're too close. This is unnatural. And that if left unmodified, resurface periodically in different shapes and forms. Malignant conditions are rarely cured by new blood or radical, uh, or radical surgery you know, the problem is we just need some new blood in this place. I think that pastor's gotten too old and he's not relevant anymore. And so let's move him off. And that's not, that's not me trying to protect my job. (laughs) That may well may be the case, right? It doesn't mean that everybody gets to keep their job when an organization is trying to figure out who it is. But notice that the language of malignancy means that you've got these undifferentiated things that are spreading throughout the rest of the system. Let's talk about another one. No leadership, right? No leadership. This is organizations who are infected with a lack of anyone who can see what's really happening. Are there any well-differentiated people in the midst who can actually see the, uh, uh, the organization for what it is? Again, let's go one more uh, Friedman uh, quote here. He says, the more systemic chronic anxiety becomes in a family, the more likely that the relationship system is to stay oriented towards its symptoms. Ooh, did you hear that? What is the organization oriented towards? If it's oriented toward its symptoms, or more likely it's to engage in external crises or struggles as a way to avoid facing the emotional processes that are driving the family to become sim- uh, symptomatic. What he means by that is you get focused on your symptoms and you don't see the global issues. I'm sure a doctor could come up with a great illustration here about how that happens in medicine, I'm sure, every single day. But, what we can't, but oftentimes if you don't have a leader in the family who's coming in and saying, all we're doing is talking about the negatives and the, syst- and the, and the symptoms, And we're not looking at how we're taught. we're not asking the question why we're asking the questions this way. Bebo used to always talk to us when I was in RUF, one of the founders of RUF, and he would say, it's all about learning to do meta-thinking. You know, it's one thing to be caught in a problem. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm trying to figure this out. Meta-thinking, though, is thinking about the way you're thinking about it, which, (laughs) my kids say this all the time, oh, that's real meta. Exactly, that's exactly what he meant, (laughs) But that's what we're trying to do in an organization as well. I'm not simply going back to the old ways and being fixated on those things. Another bad way is compliance. Look, that guy's being compliant, but he clearly doesn't want to be, right? Here's what we say, though. Compliance is an outward and perfunctory, you know what it means to be perfunctory? Just kind of box checking, right? Click, click, click. Of going along with the wishes of the other while inwardly, maybe even unconsciously, resenting being forced into this behavior, Ooh, yeah. And here's the deal. That pain inside you of resentment is going to come out somewhere. It just is. It's leaking out somewhere because all pain in life has got to get out. Compliance. uh, Basically, um, uh, yeah, trying to go along with um, whatever anybody says without dealing with my own inward disappointment. Have I dealt with that in healthy ways? Uh, Rebellion. Rebellion is the opposite of compliance, right? Right? Uh, pretty simple. They've looked and said, you know, I'm not doing this. This is a person's determined response that there is no one that's going to infringe on my rights. Look, I've been a member of this church just as long as anybody else. Nobody's taken this away from me. Rebellion. But there's a great irony in all this as well. Ironically, the, uh, the, the, um, the rebel ends up losing their sense of self as well. Why? Because you're still not acting for yourself because all you're doing is acting angry. In other words, the fact that you're living in the midst of your anger means you're still being controlled. It's an old illustration a pastor friend of mine used to use about when he would go out and advertise in the neighborhood about vacation Bible school. They would go out to the neighborhood and invite people to vacation Bible school. And they said they came to one particular door and uh, this old man behind the door was kind of like, I'm not sending my kids to vacation Bible school. My parents made me go to that garbage when I was a kid. I'm never going to put that on my kids. And as they walked away, the pastor was like, and your parents are still controlling you. You're not open to the possibility that maybe this vacation Bible school thing might be beneficial for your children. You're not even willing to consider it because my parents made me. Guess what? They're still yanking your chain. Can you say that in Sunday school, yanking your chain? They're still at, you're still on their leash, as it were. That's the irony of rebellion. Here's a fun one. Power struggles. This is a bad way to deal with anxiety. Power struggles are demanding that the other person act according to the rebel's wishes. It's a demandingness. It's it's like rebellion, but but it's a little bit more. It's not only just a refusal to do what's asked, but it's a demand for the other person to do what I want them to do. Uh, uh, Friedman calls these people terrorists. (laughs) You can either call them terrorists or four-year-old children, one or the other. It's the same uh, dynamic in place there. Uh, It involves accusations, blaming, inflicting harm. That's when the Cold War becomes hot in an organization. There's like legitimate fights happening uh, in people's offices and in the hallways and whatever else. The weird thing about power struggles is they have this strange tendency to perpetuate themselves and to keep the, the power struggles going. Richardson says this, In the power struggle, each side evaluates the other as wrong and tells the other what to do. Frustration and anger are the major subjective experience for those who engage in power struggle. Another one, cutting people off. Boy, welcome to welcome to Les Newsom's world. This is just a refusal to keep engaging. I'm done with you. It's the easiest, most cowardly way to get done with any kind of conflict. I don't really have to talk to you at all, and I'm not going to talk to you. And we walk away. Just cut people off, and that's a very normal thing. There's an emotional process that basically we can uh, uh, that comes on when uh, yeah, when, I, when I, my power struggle becomes fruitless, I just walk away from it. And it's a desire to get rid of the pain oftentimes, to be done with the pain, but of course, it doesn't really deal with it. The weird thing about the cut, get it, cutting people off is this is what psychiatrists will say is the beginning to uh, actual physical threats. If someone's going to get smacked around in a marriage or in a family, it usually happens right here because they've decided to cut them off. It's where the trigger gets more a thing and physical abuse is a possible and violence. Okay, finally, this is what I want to finish on. There is this unhealthy way of known, known as triangulation, okay? Because much of what we sort of looked at up th- till this point involve uh, conflict that we think only happens between us and one other person. But think about what happens when there's something between you and another person. That person looks out there like you're, they're driving you crazy, they're, they're making you sad and mad, and you're over here. That's a level of anxiety, right? And so that person who's feeling the anxiety over this broken relationship is looking for relief, <laughs> They want relief, and in that moment they might be very undifferentiated. They're not remembering anything about their identity in Christ, <laughs> right? They're not thinking through any of those things. And so, what are they looking for? They're looking to draw someone else into the uh, into the anxiety, and so they come and they gossip. They say mean things. They do whatever they want to. They, they, they sort of viciously attack the other person. And just think about how easy this is to understand. Let's say that Evan, England, and I have something between us. We don't have anything between us, do we, Evan? We're cool, right? So Evan and I you know, have a thing between us. That's a level of anxiety right there. But let's say I go to a mutual friend of Evan and I's, and I tell them, I'm like, are you ready to hear what Evan did to me a while back? How much more anxiety? The anxiety that was here in Evan is now here. We've just intensified it because now we sort of spread it. That's the reason why gossip is the dangerous thing that it is. And what happens is, is the third party that I drew into it did not react well. They allowed themselves to get triangulated by saying something to the effect of like, really? Well, I just wouldn't have thought that Evan was capable of something like that. Tell me more. You've been triangulated. Okay? Now, Small little thing here about triangulation. Triangulation is not evil because you went to a third party. Triangulation is bad because that third party, you were allowed to infect them with your lack of differentiation. That's the problem. But there is nothing wrong with trying to find support from people whom you can trust, and by the way, the organization can trust, to vent to and who can talk you off the ledge. There are healthy places for someone to look, to listen, to sympathize, to hear how hard that must be and how sorry I am to hear that you're going through that, and then to look at you and say, you know what? This sounds like a conversation you need to have with Evan. I I probably think you need to talk to them. That's not getting triangulated, right? That's that's attempting to get sucked into it, but looking and saying, "Mm, no, I'm not going to do that. This is probably best for this, and I'll work with you and walk alongside you at every step of the way. Isn't that amazing? Uh, once, once you get this language for this, it's everywhere. Anxiety always increases as triangles increase. Why? Because of the tension of, um, of knowing that more of the, my story is out there. Uh, so the question is, can I, can I reposition myself? Here comes, a, here comes a totally anxious person who is not remembering anything about who they are as Christians. And they're coming in, they're trying to infect you. Your goal is to attempt to reposition yourself. I'm not going to participate in that. But what I am going to do is point you to places that are healthy. It's not leaving. It's not being like, la, 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 don't hear you. No, that person needs you at that moment. The question is, what do they need? They need maturity and not immaturity. Okay? So what happens is the person who is ready to reposition themselves are able to do something pretty fascinating, which is to come along and become an absorber of the conflict rather than a conduit. That's that phrase that we've been using. Okay? I think we got another Friedman quote here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Listen to this one. I love this one. He says, there's no way out of a chronic condition, talking about organizations that have gotten bad for years, unless one is willing to go through an acute, temporarily more painful phase. This is one of those sort of mm, things that gets in my stomach. You can't go through this process of being a leader without pain. It's going to hurt. Um, this is another universal principle of emotional processes. Most individuals and most social systems, irrespective of their culture, gender, or ethnic, back, ethnic background, will naturally choose or revert to chronic conditions of bearable pain rather than face the temporary, more intense anguish of acute conditions that are the gateway to becoming free. Oof. Such is the human condition. I'll stick with the pathology. You ever wonder why it is that... Uh, Couples stay in abusive relationships. Why why do you stay there if he's hitting you? Why do you stay there when he's verbally abusive to you? Why are you staying there? Because it is easier for me to stay in the bearable pain of the chronic pathology (laughs) than it would be to go through the intense anguish of changing the uh, whole thing, which may be the gateway to making me free. Hmm. But what is also universally true is that over time, chronic conditions, precisely because they are more bearable, also tend to become more withering. You shrink. You dry up. You become, you become dead inside. So what does all this mean? What it means is that in order for us to be effective leaders, in order for us to be mature, to be helpful in organizations, we have to learn to take care of ourselves, And this is not a selfish thing. This is called sanctification. We talk about it in theological terms all the time. Now we want to talk about it in sociological terms. What does it mean for being a healthy person? Well, I thought of a handful of ways. Number one, we have to have the courage to change our behaviors, even when they're difficult. We have to allow others to change their behaviors and to be different. We have to take the risks that are involved in loving people well. And so what that means is being a healthy self means having you be a healthy person, which means, number one, first of all, finding appropriate conversation partners. Appropriate conversation partners. Do you have a group of people, preferably a group, at least one person, that is a real confidant? And you know their a real confidant is if they don't always listen to your spewing, <laughs> Right? In other words, if they're only just agreeing with you all the time, that may be sort of a, that may be a buddy, might be a drinking buddy, but it's almost certainly not a confidant or someone who's coming along beside you to help you behave more healthily. Secondly, am I learning to be healthy myself by having my own hobbies? This is going to sound really weird. One of the weird sort of psychological offshoots of the systems theorist is how important it is for even adults to find times when they can play. And by play, I mean capital P play. What are the things that you do that you can sh- 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 shut your brain off of, and do simply for the sheer enjoyment of it? And the older you get, the harder it is to remember what those things are or were. And I realize some of you have been like, "That's my bass boat." And I'm like, "Exactly. That's what I'm talking about." And of course, those particular trying to navigate those things healthily in, in in your life is also part of that. Y'all crazy number three. Crazy is this diet and exercise. Diet and exercise. Sometimes it is about what I eat. Sometimes it is about how much activity I'm getting. Wow, you know, I got the most depressed when I was the most busy at work. So I was sitting behind a desk, totally inert, right? And just building in the midst of internal anxiety. Or better yet, sleep. Can I get my sleep regulated? That's one of my things. I'm a hopeless insomniac. And when that stuff comes up, it ruins everything. Learning to deal with the stress in my life. What are the healthy ways in which I do that? How can that stuff create health? And so part of what we're saying is, is is there something going on with you? And I would argue that one of the best things that leaders can do is to seek out the people that they know are going through emotional processes and simply come alongside them in ways that are healthy, in ways that are healthy Does that make sense? All right. So again, we're trying to get an operational picture of of conflict in the church and grasping at some of the ways that are unhealthy and not doing that. Does that mean we'll always do well? No. We're always going to do that. This stuff is going to come up all the time. We'll be tempted by all these things in certain ways. Okay? What kind of questions you got? Did I get anywhere close to answering the triangulation question? Generally speaking, I think the way in which that undifferentiated person is encouraged to take responsibility for their own actions is what I was meaning when I said, you know, it sounds like you need to go back and talk to Evan. Like It sounds like that that should be a good conversation with you all. Right. I guess as a believer, when you are first by
1: someone who just wants to kind of see you and do all the
0: stuff. Sometimes it feels like what I'm looking at this vaguely, even though like a hand children in the right path, or is what I think it is the right. So like is there a point when you just stop or a hundred percent. Yeah, let, let, let me let me answer that question this way. I, I Remember, the, the, the analogy of cellular biology is really, really helpful because I like that he drew that little cell with the nucleus and the mitochondria, which is the only word we remember from high school biology. Um, the, I love that analogy because it says, can I create a boundary around myself where other cells are up functioning is not infecting mine? I do think that there are times in relationships where the, when that relationship has become chronically anxious that we say, the only healthy thing that I can do here is to create a boundary. And not give you the opportunity that you take so readily to hijack me emotionally. Does that make sense? Now, what is the difference between that and a flight instinct? Well, a flight instinct is done on the basis of your own anxiety relief. Boundaries are there to sort of give people constructive ways of saying, I'm only going to allow you to function in this healthy space. doesn't mean I'm cutting you off. It means I'm only going to allow you this. I've got relationships that I know of where I've had to work through, by the way, for years at what it looks like to helpfully respond to someone, and I don't know how well I do it, but a lot of times it's time of saying, like, when that conversation I feel is going that way, and now I'm very acutely aware of it, especially with people in my immediate family, when I can feel that conversation slouching toward manipulation, right, that's time to get cut off. This conversation's over. Thanks, and we just change the topic. Or I got to go. We hang up the phone. That, I think, is some of the boundaries. And what that does eventually to the undifferentiated person is over time they begin to realize, I don't have access to that person. Now, tragically, they may just go find the next hapless victim, right? <laughs> which is, which, but that's, I don't know that that's my responsibility because to whatever degree they interacted with me, they got stability. That, I think, is what Friedman's talking about. What else? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. They're making to like decisions and I'm like, okay, and I to this you're saying no more. Yeah. Because that makes me so anxious That's right. Yeah. You bring up something so profound here because I think this is really important. One of the things about remaining healthy is growing in maturity about the the means of communication that are healthy and are not. I have argued for years that that that. that social media is a form of communication that can do some things relatively well. There are other things that it is abysmally bad at. And to sort of have a lengthy conversation via text group is, is, is a really bad use of those kinds of things. And I'll say this, I think even, you know, it, it, social media can be an awful place to attempt Uh, to have meaningful conversation. I think social media is a great way to disseminate information. I think it's a horrible place to discuss information. Face-to-face humanity or small group Bible studies are infinitely better ways to sort of do the human interaction because you've got body language that you can interpret. You've got emotional connection that gets made. Don't do that online. Everybody's like, I can't believe Twitter people are so mean on Twitter. It's like, well, it's 120, 240 characters, right? That's all you get. And so the worst parts of my nature are going to come out because the form has forced you into it. So the question then becomes, ask that in a more broad way. So yeah, text message group, probably not the best way to do business as an organization, even though they can serve a function in certain ways. What are the other forms that I'm trying to fit other people into that are also not working? I don't know. And is, is communication being squelched because that's an unhealthy way to deal with this conflict as well? That's a great illustration about how the form of our communication may end up being part of the problem. Is there a better time in which we can get face to face? Look, if nothing else, I wanted to sort of whet your appetite to go read things from uh, 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 Edward Friedman. If you want to do Failure Nerve, you can. To me, it's a little more esoteric. Start with Ron Richardson's Creating a Healthier Church. I think you'll love and enjoy that because it's very applicable to what we do here in this organization. Or go watch this video again. I'm glad to send that uh, link out to other people if you get interested in it. But y'all, this has been an absolute joy. Thank you for this fall. Uh, in the spring we will dive into the question of being the church in the world and melvin's going to talk about some apologetic stuff and things like this but let's pray as we get ready for worship lord jesus give us grace then to be a healthy body whatever that means we thank you for your insight that you've given to all these people who've thought very interestingly about what it means for us to be mature and together but we need your help with it we know your spirit facilitates all of that meta thinking And so we pray for his influence on our lives and on the future of our church as you bless us. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.